Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Aksarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University. Joining us today is Dr. Kashyar Vaziri, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University. There have been significant changes in the repair of complex abdominal wall hernia in the past decade, much of which relates to the introduction of biologic mesh. Dr. Vaziri has an expertise in this field and will be discussing options for repair of different types of ventral hernia in various patient populations. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Let's start by quickly reviewing the different types of prosthetic mesh available and indications for their use. There are many different types of prosthetic mesh, and the difficulty in practice today is that we are all, frankly, bombarded with the different types of mesh and how one is better than the other. But the types of prosthetic mesh, uh, there are the basic uh, proline meshes or polypropylene meshes. These are the meshes that cannot be put in juxtaposition to the viscera or the bowel. And then there are various types of dual meshes or barrier meshes where one side can be against the fascia for good incorporation and the other side is safe to be against the abdominal viscera. That's kind of a nice overview of the prostheses that can be placed against the uh, abdomen. I'll throw out a couple of uh, specific names just for the residents who may be listening. You're talking about uh, things such as uh, Priotex, uh, dual mesh. Um, right. So Priotex is a barrier mesh. One side is polyester. The other side is uh, has got a barrier coating, which is safe to be placed on the intraperitoneal side or as an underlay. There are really three areas in the abdominal wall that you place mesh. One is an onlay, meaning over the fascia. One is an underlay, meaning underneath the fascia on the intraperitoneal side. And one is an inlay, which means between the muscle layers of the fascia. Um, so the barrier meshes or the uh, Gore-Tex or the dual mesh which or the Pariotex, and there is a long list of meshes that have a barrier coating, where one side is safe as far as adhesions and incorporation to be placed against the viscera, those are safe to place on the intraperitoneal side as an underlay. The other meshes, such as your straight polypropylene or your proline or your Marlex meshes, those are not safe to be uh, adjacent to the bowel or the viscera, and those need to be either placed as an inlay or as an onlay where you have a primary fascial closure so there is no mesh exposed to the intraabdominal viscera. And before we get into biologic meshes and more complex type hernia repairs, um, is it a fair statement that all significant or large ventral hernias should be repaired with some sort of mesh reinforcement? Yes. The, the key to hernia surgery, and this, is, this has changed over the past few years, the, the, the years of placing these large pieces of mesh and spanning a defect or as an interposition or a quote-unquote bridge, those days are frankly pretty much gone. Um, it's not just about closing the hole or blocking the hole with a piece of mesh. Now it's about closing the fascia and reapproximating the rectus muscles to the midline and really reestablishing function of the abdominal wall. The abdominal wall is a dynamic muscle, and the only way that your patients are going to have a functional outcome, especially for younger patients that have a long life to live, you you need to address the defect of the abdominal wall with a fascial closure. A primary fascial closure, whether you put the mesh on top or underneath or in between, it's the primary fascial closure that's the key that gives long-term function. 
Uh, that can be done with or without a complex maneuver, such as a component separation or some kind of release to allow the fascia to come together with minimal or no tension. And if you were to place mesh, and you could place it anywhere you wanted to place it, where ideally should the mesh go? It depends on the patient and the type of mesh that you are using. And you know, in general, I think surgeons should use the, use the mesh that they are comfortable using. Uh, and uh, they, the biggest uh, key point is to get a primary fascial closure. If the surgeons are more comfortable with an underlay or an intraperitoneal piece of mesh, as long as they're using the appropriate mesh that can be placed against the viscera, or an onlay mesh, which is on the anterior surface, the fascia is closed underneath, or an interposition such as a, a retrorectus, uh, uh, mesh placement. It all depends on what the surgeon is uh, comfortable doing. The data shows that a primary fascial closure is key, and buttressing a primary fascial closure gives you a lower recurrence rate than a primary fascial closure alone. So but what if I close the fascia <clears throat> and I put a mesh in a, uh, in a superficial position on top of everything, whereas I put a mesh in an intraperitoneal position below everything? Right. Does that matter? It, it, it doesn't. As far as hernia recurrence, as long as you don't have some type of post-op infection or wound complication, it, it really doesn't make that much of a difference long term. I personally like to have my mesh either as a retrorectus position or as an uh, underlay. Uh, because with open repairs, and especially with patients that are higher risk, your wound complication rate is higher. And once you have a wound complication or an infection and that wound is open, the next muscle layer or the next tissue layer is your mesh. And exposed mesh can be infected. Even if it's a biologic, it'll disintegrate. Uh, I take uh, my personal practice, prefer either a retrorectus or an underlay position in order to have fascia and, and healthy uh, tissue in between my mesh and the outside world. All right, so that's an excellent um, leeway into the biologic mesh world. So every time I open up a journal, someone has invented a new biologic mesh, and I can't keep up. Uh, let's go over the different types and uses. There are many different types of biologic mesh, and what, they, what is meant by biologic mesh is that it's derived from animal tissue uh, or human tissue. Um, the earlier biologic mesh, which was human acellular dermis, uh, is not used much in abdominal wall reconstruction. Uh, due to its elasticity and tendency to bulge. Most of the biologic meshes available today, and there is a whole host of them, are either porcine or bovine, uh, acellular dermis, and uh, those are placed in various positions. The benefit of a biologic mesh really comes to a contaminated field or a uh, potentially dirty field where you worry about a high risk of infection or you've had some type of visceral damage where uh, you're looking to use a mesh buttress and your risk of infecting a prosthetic mesh is much higher. The biologic mesh has a better infection profile. Uh, than the prosthetic meshes. And as we all know who do hernia surgery, an infected mesh is a very difficult situation to deal with. Do they have a better biologic profile in terms of infection because they resist or eradicate the infection, or do they just dissolve and go away? Uh, it's uh, They do dissolve and go away. They are not a permanent mesh like the synthetic mesh. But uh, much of it has to do with the incorporation and the neovascularization and the ability to try to treat through these uh, through these uh, infections. Now, an infected mesh is going to dissolve more than likely, and your recurrence rate is very, very high for any type of hernia repair that has an infection. It's probably the single most 
dependent risk factors for hernia recurrence, regardless of how the hernia is fixed, where the mesh is placed, or the type of mesh that is used. All right, let me just stop you there, because we're gonna, I'm going to come back to the hernia recurrence risk factors and all that in just one second, but just staying on the topic of the biologic meshes. So you mentioned that they come from different sources, bovine, porcine, human. Are there any studies that suggest one source is better than the other? No, the majority of studies that are performed on biologic mesh are either out-of-the-box tissue strength, sutural pull-through strength, breaking strength. Um, There aren't any good studies, long-term studies, clinical studies, human studies of biologic mesh versus biologic mesh in long-term recurrence. Most of the head-to-head studies have to do with packaging strength, pull-through strength, uh, burst strength, uh, and, and so on and so forth. There's also uh, biologic studies as far as uh, uh, resistance to infections or treat-throughs, but none of this has been clearly shown in the clinical outcome human data. Okay. And the other difference in the different types of uh, biologic mesh is cross-linked versus non-cross-linked. Any data support that? There are many surgeons that don't like cross-linked mesh. I don't. And, and some of that has to do with its uh, long-term qualities and characteristics. Cross-linked mesh tend to be uh, encapsulated and tend to have different qualities as uh, opposed to the other biologic meshes. And many people have moved away from the cross-linked mesh and used non-cross-linked mesh just because of those qualities. There's no data that says the cross-linking gives you better strength and le- therefore less stretch, less creation of a neo-type hernia? There, there isn't good clinical... There isn't any good clinical data uh, to show that that actually decreases recurrence rate long-term in humans. So most of this data is either in the lab or on animal studies, but none of it has really been proven without a doubt in human clinical trials as far as endpoints of hernia recurrence, long-term longevity of hernia repair. Okay. So then let's go back to the point you had raised, which was um, risk factors for hernia recurrence, irrespective of the type of... um operation perform. Is there a grading scale we can use to kind of predict this? There is a grading scale, and uh, the grading scale is more, I use it more in my practice kind of as a guideline. Um, I don't use it as an end-all, be-all, and like all other guidelines, it's really clinical judgment and surgical judgment of the patient in front of you and the complexity of the hernia and all the other factors. There is a grading scale, uh, it's grades one through four, and basically it's broken up as grade one being low risk and grade four being infected. And the grade ones are your low-risk outpatient hernias, patients that are healthy, they are not diabetic, they're not obese, they're not immunocompromised, uh, they're non-smokers who come and have a hernia that you are going to fix, uh, no history of a wound infection. These are incisional hernias? These are incisional hernias. Okay. Okay. Uh, the, The grade twos are those patients that do have the comorbidities. I I don't see any grade one patients in my practice. (laughs) I don't know what uh, other surgeons are seeing. The grade twos are patients that have comorbid factors that increase your risk of recurrence or infection, such as smoking, obesity, uh, immunosuppressed uh, immunosuppressed, uh, patient, patients with COPD, diabetic patients. Uh, And majority of my patients fall into at least grade two, three, or four. The grade three is the potentially contaminated, which means that they've had a previous wound infection. Uh, meaning they have a stoma or some type of uh, violation of the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, these are patients who have had bowel resections or have hernias and bowel resections at the same time. Any clean contaminated or potentially contaminated case. And finally, the grade four are the grossly infected uh, uh, cases such as uh, spillage, uh, dehiscence, infected mesh removal, and you're fixing the hernia after you take out a piece of infected mesh. Um, 
in general, as a guideline, as you get higher up in the grades, your chances of infection are higher. Uh, the, the likelihood of using a synthetic mesh is lower. That doesn't mean that some surgeons don't use synthetic mesh in all cases. There are surgeons out there that do. It just kind of gives you a guideline for how high risk am I in this kind of situation? Should I be considering a biologic mesh in this situation because of the uh, better infection profile? Okay, and so it stands to common sense that the more infected the field, obviously the higher the risk of infection, and that's where the biologic meshes really have revolutionized the, um, the repair. I think we would all agree uh, in surgery at large that given a clean field, one would prefer to use prosthetic over biologic. I would agree with that. I think the data supports that the long-term uh, recurrence rates and the uh, hernia recurrence for a synthetic mesh uh, is uh, lower than that for a biologic mesh. However, in a, cl in a clean field, there are some surgeons that advocate using a biologic mesh in a clean field for certain situations. Uh, for example, patients with Crohn's disease, where you're placing an intraperitoneal or an underlay mesh. Some surgeons would use a biologic there because they worry about fistula formation, future infections, etc. cetera. Uh, also, there's, uh, there's been uh, plenty of surgeons who talk about with younger patients who are more than likely going to need a repeat operation in the future that biologic mesh should be considered uh, because those patients will not have a synthetic mesh to cut through in a future operation. We've all done colon resections on patients who have had a hernia repair in the past, and you're performing now 10 years later a colon resection for diverticulitis, and you're cutting through a piece of synthetic mesh. There's always concerns when you close that, oh, have I inoculated that synthetic mesh because it will be there forever. So there are those certain types of patients where it should be considered. However, the long-term recurrence rates for the biologic mesh in a clean field are not really known, and I would argue are likely not uh, going to be as low as a synthetic mesh. In a clean field, the synthetic mesh is still going to give you your best recurrence or your lowest recurrence rate. The caveat here is that you must obtain a primary fascial closure. There is a score of data showing that an interposition mesh or a mesh used as a bridge will have a much higher recurrence rate than uh, when mesh is used to buttress a primary fascial closure. And the, the key to take away from hernia repair is to obtain a primary fascial closure if at all possible. Whether that requires a component separation or not, a primary fascial closure and then buttressing that primary fascial closure with mesh will give you your best outcomes. Now, there are times where patients, you cannot obtain a primary fascial closure. Uh, and uh, those patients that are the open abdomens and, uh, you know, you're going back to close them, even with a component separation, you just can't get the primary fascial, the fascia closed primarily. Uh, and then you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And, and frankly, any type of mesh that you are going to use is not going to make a difference. The incidence of recurrence for that is quite high. What about the approach to the operation? Does it matter if you're going open versus laparoscopic? I think it does It does matter. Uh, for all the laparoscopic hernias that I perform, I, I perform a primary fascial closure also. Uh, whether you do open or laparoscopic, the, the differences there have got to do with wound uh, complication rates. Open hernia repairs have a much higher wound complication rate than a laparoscopic repair, and that, in my mind, would factor into where I would place my mesh. With an open repair, I... I'm very unlikely to put my mesh on an onlay position, simply because if you have a wound complication, then your mesh is exposed, the chance of mesh infection is higher. I would do either an underlay, such as a retrorectus, uh, I mean an underlay such as an intraperitoneal, or a retrorectus where 
if you were to obtain a wound complication, then you'd have a, uh, at least some healthy fascia with a primary fascial closure between your mesh and the outside world. Um, the open repairs have a higher complex, uh, higher uh, wound complication rate, a little bit of a higher uh, hospital stay. Now, for the complex abdominal wall repairs, where we talk about a component separation, there are those considerations of a laparoscopic component separation versus an open component separation. And that depends on the size of the defect. An open component separation, in my experience, gives you more release than a laparoscopic component separation. So whether I approach a component separation laparoscopically or open really depends upon the size of the defect and how much of a release I will need in order to get a primary fascial closure. Okay, well, let's take those uh, one by one because that's a lot of uh, different types of problems, really. So if you were doing, let's go for the easy one. If you're doing an open uh, component separation repair, I take it given the nature of the wound, you're going to use a biologic. Right. An open component separation repair, uh, whether you do an anterior release or a posterior release, I tend to use biologic. There are many surgeons there that if it's a clean field, will use a synthetic. Um, The only concern I would have was that there's a high incidence of wound complication and an open component separation. In fact, you have to leave a number of drains behind. Correct. It's up to 30% wound complication rate. Uh, And I would, I I place my mesh in an open uh, component separation, either in the retrorectus or the intraperitoneal position. Uh, There are drains I leave in the sub-Q. And there are some minimally invasive techniques as far as release of the anterior component separation release uh, versus a posterior release. Um, However, due to the high incidence of wound complication, I tend to place my mesh retrorectus or intraperitoneal. Synthetic mesh can be used. That's okay because you still have the fascia over there. I tend to move towards biologic mesh. What if you're just doing a straight-up laparoscopic ventral hernia repair, no component separation needed, just a straight-up, you know, you've got three or four holes in the fascia along the incision line? Right. The Swiss cheese defects, I try to close. Sometimes they're very small and you can't close them and they're less than a centimeter wide. Then I would just place a synthetic mesh uh, laparoscopically as an underlay. Synthetic, unless you incur obviously a bowel injury or something Correct. in which case. Any kind of bowel injury or anything, then you could, depending on your comfort, complete that uh, laparoscopically. If you can address the bowel injury, most people would convert to an open and then use a biologic mesh because it is a clean contaminated field at that point in time. All right, and so um, that's a pretty good, I think, overview of the different types of mesh and different types of scenarios. And I figured let's just go through maybe a couple of um, examples and see what you would do. So uh, let's take a 50-year-old diabetic obese female, uh, body mass index is 44, uh, undergoes a laparoscopic converted to uh, open ventral hernia repair uh, because an intraoperative enterotomy um, is incurred. The enterotomy is repaired primarily. Um, there's no mesh used initially due to uh, concern for infection. The abdomen is closed, uh, including the skin. A patient develops a severe wound infection uh, with fascial dehiscence post-op. They treat her with a back dressing. Ultimately, uh, the inevitable recurrent hernia occurs. Um, And so she comes to see you, and let's say she's about a year out now, um, and she's got a scar there. She's got a hernia that's five centimeters across on physical exam. She's still obese and has the comorbidities. How do you go about repairing this recurrent uh, incisional hernia repair? This is a great question because it brings up a lot of different things uh, that need to be addressed. First, if this is not an emergent operation and it sounds like she's presenting now for an elective hernia repair, uh, 
the first thing you want to do is assess the patient and understand the comorbidities. And you want to set that patient up for the best possible outcome for your hernia repair. And that means address the modifiable comorbidities first. Meaning if she is a diabetic, you need to get good blood sugar control preoperatively. If she's a smoker, she needs to stop smoking. With a BMI of 44, your recurrence rate is going to be high because of the obesity. This is a patient that I would seriously discuss medical weight loss and also bariatric surgery preoperatively. For those patients that come to me with an incisional hernia with a BMI of 44, they try medical weight loss. If they can decrease their weight, that's great. Many of those patients end up with a gastric bypass preoperatively, lose the weight, delay the stage, and delay the hernia repair to one year post-op when their weight plateaus. That's only if their symptoms will allow. So you wouldn't repair the hernia at the time of the gastric bypass? Repairing the hernia at the time of the gastric bypass all kind of depends. I would not do any type of formal hernia repair at the time of the gastric bypass. I may close the hernia defect, uh, just primary fascial closure, in order to uh, temporize them. But to place mesh and do a formal repair, if this, her symptoms would allow, I would delay that to one year when she has lost 50 to 70% of her excess weight and her weight has plateaued. That is really setting that patient up for the best repair possible. So as far as patient preparation goes for hernia repair, you need to downstage them or decrease or control as many of their comorbidities as possible. Obesity is one, and if that hernia is really not symptomatic and it has some momentum in it, I'll have the patient lose weight or I'll do a gastric bypass on the patient and fix the hernia a year from now. All right, so <clears throat> she undergoes her gastric bypass, her BMI drops to, you know, pick a number you like, 28, 30. You're, Perfect. You're an excellent bariatric surgeon. <laughs> and now she's back. It's a year from now. Right. So a year from now, uh, with her hernia, five centimeter defect, okay, I need to get a primary fascial closure. And that's the recurrent theme. Any type of hernia repair that is done must absolutely have a primary fascial closure. Whether that requires a component separation or not, it all depends on the patient's body habitus, the size, the defect, how lax their abdominal wall is. Um, what I would do with this patient is that their obesity is gone, they're a non-smoker, uh, she's 50 years old. If this is an elective situation, though she's had a previous infection, and again, a previous infection predisposes her to another infection and a hernia recurrence. However, in this patient, I would likely do a hernia repair, and if it's clean, I would use synthetic mesh. Okay, good. So that's my question, is when does this stigmata of a previous wound infection not matter anymore? I mean, uh, one year it, out, you use the synthetic mesh. Right. It all it always matters. I mean, forever, if you follow those patients, a previous wound infection will predispose them to another wound infection. However, it it is all uh, a surgeon's comfort with taking those risks and, of course, uh, a discussion with the patient uh, about what risks they want to take. The longevity, currently with the data available, the longevity of a synthetic repair is better than a biologic repair. In this patient who's 50, who's had previous hernias, had obesity, previous surgery, I would, I feel comfortable fixing this with synthetic. Okay. All right. So let's, uh, let's uh, maybe kick it up a notch here. Um, similar patient, 50-year-old uh, diabetic obese female presents for a chronically incarcerated uh, hernia containing uh, colon. And she also has a persistent draining sinus tract from the mid-abdomen despite one year of IV antibiotics and a trial of NPO-TPN uh, for six months. She states that it, she initially had an umbilical hernia that was repaired with mesh. She developed a post-op infection, uh, and she thinks the mesh was explanted four or five months ago. So she's out about six months out now. Um, a fistulogram is negative. 
All you, all you see is a sinus cavity there, but it is persistently draining. So you take her to the OR. You find that there's still remnant mesh inside her. They had not fully explanted the mesh. Uh, the mesh appears to be polypropylene and is sitting in a onlay position. So you see it right away when you open up. Uh, and again, no fistula is seen. You see the incarcerated colon. You resect the mesh. You're left with a 25 by centimeter long, 10 centimeter wide fascial defect. Colon is reduced. You do not do a colon resection. What do you want to do? So there, there are different ways you could approach this patient. I mean, this is one of those patients that's higher risk, a higher risk from an infection standpoint, chronically draining sinus. Uh, who knows if you missed a fistula or haven't missed a fistula? Of course, there are those concerns. Uh, patients obese, uh, diabetic, this is a higher risk patient. Uh, the two ways that I would think to approach this patient, one, you could from the beginning say, I'm gonna do a staged repair. I'm going to go in there with the first operation, clean out the infected mesh, the chronically draining sinuses, make sure there is no fistula, plan to come back and do a hernia repair later. So, so how would you close her? You've there, done that. How, what is staging? The, the staging would mean that you would do the abdominal component separation uh, and the hernia repair with mesh. Uh, on a uh, on a three or six months down the line. So either way, you could put a biologic mesh as an interposition, knowing that it's going to recur, knowing this is just going to temporize the patient until you do a formal repair, or you could frankly just close the skin and the soft tissue over, accept the hernia, have discussed this with the patient preoperatively. The first operation really is, for lack of a better term, a damage control operation where you are uh, removing the source of infection, cleaning everything out, accepting the hernia, Getting a clean, taking a clean contaminated situation or a contaminated situation, cleaning it up so that six months later when you approach this patient, you have a clean situation. The other option is to go for it all at once, uh, and I don't think that's the wrong move. Uh, some uh, surgeons stage the operation even with a day or two, uh, meaning that if it's a grossly infected field, on your first operation, source control, clean up the infection, uh, Apthera or uh, some type of uh, intra-abdominal vac or temporary uh, abdominal closure, go back two or three days later when things are cleaned up, wash it out, and do your repair. Other surgeons would say, I'm just, if it looks okay, it's just a chronically drained sinus, I don't have a fistula, I don't have any pus, uh, I'll go ahead and remove everything, wash it out, and at that time, do a component separation with a biologic mesh. So if you were to do the stage and come back six months later, uh, maybe you already mentioned this, but how would you, what, what mesh product would you use, prosthetic or uh, biologic? Well, in this patient with this size defect will require a component separation. A laparoscopic or minimally invasive component separation, in my experience, would not give enough release for a 10 centimeter wide defect, especially in an obese patient. Uh, this would be an open uh, component separation, whether it's anterior or posterior, and I would use a biologic mesh either in a retrorectus or an underlay position. That's my personal preference. There are surgeons, and this is not uh, wrong, to come back or and do the operation with a synthetic mesh, either in a retrorectus uh, position or an underlay position. I would, I would have reservation about uh, placing an onlay piece of mesh because of the chronically draining sinus and the subcutaneous tissues have been so scarred from the previous uh, surgery and uh, the sinus tracts that I would think that there could be some hidden inoculation of bacteria in the subcutaneous tissues. Okay. And then just one last one. I think hopefully this is a fairly straightforward one. Uh, 35-year-old, otherwise healthy female, not obese, uh, who underwent an open appendectomy via midline incision, uh, let's say several years ago, presents now with a three centimeter ventral hernia that's easily reducible. Um, again, she's healthy, no diabetes, no comorbidities. How would you repair this defect? So 
I personally would repair this defect laparoscopically. Uh, the discussion point here with this patient really comes to family planning. Uh, she's 35. I would have the discussion in my office. Is she uh, planning on having children in the future? Pregnancy is going to increase your risk of recurrence, uh, especially if it's a lower midline incision. I worry that if she were to get pregnant in the future and need a C-section, they would cut through some synthetic mesh. With that kind of discussion, uh, I would fix this laparoscopically with a primary fascial closure, and I would likely use synthetic mesh unless the patient really wants biologic mesh. My reservations for biologic mesh, although it won't be there forever, and if she were to have family planning in the future and have a recurrence, your mesh is gone in a year. Uh, but the long-term outcomes of the biologic mesh are lar largely unknown. So in this patient, it comes to the office visit, a conversation about fixing the repair and giving the benefits and the, uh, and the drawbacks of each type of mesh. And uh, you know, a lot of it has to do with whether or not she's planning on having children in the future. For those that are planning on having children in the future, your recurrence rate is going to go up because of the changes of the abdominal wall. It is a consideration for biologic mesh with the caveat that the long-term outcomes are unknown and likely not as good as a synthetic mesh. But a primary fascial closure is absolutely necessary in all instances, if possible. All right. That's, I think that's an excellent way to just end the, pro, uh, the podcast by bringing in these types of um, life choices and uh, future planning for things such as uh, pregnancies. Uh, clearly, the management of abdominal wall hernia has become much, much more involved as new techniques and new products have been introduced. Um, and hopefully this uh, will help the uh, surgeons uh, keep up with the uh, myriad of different products and approaches that are available. Uh, I'd like to thank Dr. Viziri for taking the time to review the principles uh, and fundamentals of uh, complex ventral hernia repair with us. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit, visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Bob Axarani.